I heard a, a preacher this week talk about preaching through Romans 8, and he made known that it took him about a year, a year and a half to go through Romans 8. So I was thinking about this in light of a record-breaking sermon last week, 37 minutes in HBC's pulpit. I'm keeping you here till 5 today. <laughs> and Cindy's doing intermission at 1, so we're good. No, we're not going to do that. Uh, but I do want to encourage you, we, we are finishing our mini-series, um, In Christ Today. That's the title. Um, and we're going to be ending in verse 17, and the rest of Romans 8 is really a beautiful um, chapter. So take some time this week, meditate, read through the rest of Romans 8, spend some time in God's Word, uh, and I know that it will encourage you, it will strengthen you. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 8, and we discovered that there is a reality, and there is a, a very, this reality is the most marvelous reality, and, and that reality is to be in Christ. Being in Christ is the most marvelous reality, and we looked at two reasons why. First of all, if you are in Christ, you are no longer condemned. You are no longer condemned. You are released from sin's penalty because of Christ's work. He came in the form of man in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us. You are no longer condemned. We also saw that you are no longer controlled. And we looked at that in, in verses 5 through 8, where apart from Christ, you are controlled by sin. You are a slave to sin. You are under the dominion of sin. But in Christ, you are no longer controlled. And so, two more truths, two more implications of being in Christ that we're going to see today. First, you are controlled. You are controlled. And that, that control is bind through the Spirit, that you have been given a Spirit and you are controlled by the Spirit. And we're going to be seeing two things in that. You've been given a new power. You've been given a new power over sin. And not only have you been given a new power, but you have been given a new pursuit. That you are in Christ through the Spirit pursuing obedience. And we are also going to see that in Christ, you are comforted by the Spirit, that you have a great comforter, and you have a great comfort. And in that, we're going to be seeing two things. You have a new position that before God, in Christ, you stand positionally different. You're an enemy. We're going to see that you are now a child, and you have a new prospect, you have a new future, and that future is waiting for us in eternity, so really excited. Let's begin, um, since I'm keeping you here until 5, we can start at verse 1 and go through verse 17. Uh, verse 1, Paul says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh and those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And starting today, verse 9, you believers, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Hebrews makes known that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can pierce to the division of the soul and the spirit. May it pierce our hearts today. To be in Christ is the most marvelous reality. And first we see, well, I guess this could be our third implication, that in Christ you are controlled by the Spirit. You are controlled by the Spirit. And we see that starting in verse 9. That going up, building up to verse 9, Paul Um, generally is is talking about two people, believers, unbelievers. And we saw that contrast from verses 5 to 8. Believers are those who walk according to the Spirit. Unbelievers are those who walk according to the flesh. And in verses 7 and 8, we see that apart from Christ, you cannot please God. You're hostile to God. You cannot submit to God's law. You cannot submit to God's law, and you are under condemnation. But he changes direction in verse 9. He goes from speaking to the unbeliever in 7 and 8 to fixating his gaze upon believers, and he does that by using that personal pronoun, you, however. You, however. And yes, he's talking to his audience, which is those who are in Rome, believers in Rome, but this is also to us, believers. You, believer, are not 
in the flesh, but in the spirit. Meaning you do not belong to the flesh. You do not belong to the old age of sin and death, but you belong to the new age of life and righteousness in the spirit. But how does this happen? I came to that text and I asked myself the question, how do we know if we are in the Spirit? How do we know if we are believers? How do we know if we are in the Spirit? And I think Paul answers that question right after he says, you, however, are not in the Spirit in the flesh. How do we know if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you? To be in Christ is to be in the Spirit, and to be in the Spirit is to be indwelt by the Spirit. that if you are in Christ, you will have the Spirit. And that happens at the moment of salvation. I love 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. It says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? The Spirit, the very Spirit of God makes His house in our earthly temples. Isn't that amazing? And as we saw last week, not only does he come and dwell within you, but he changes you completely. He changes your disposition, he changes your sway, he changes your desires, your affections, everything, so that we desire to obey God. And and he releases us from the power of sin. And we have a new power in the Spirit. I love Galatians 5 as well. Um, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, we sing about this in Adventure Bible Club, talking about the fruits of the Spirit. That if you are in Christ, you will exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit is in you. You used to exhibit the fruits of the flesh, the fruits of sin, but now you are able to have love. Now you're able to be peaceable. You're able to have self-control. Because the Spirit is dwelling within you. There's a Gatorade commercial that um, I was talking with the students about, and it proposes the question, is it in you? Is it in you? And, and proposing this question, it kind of shows an athlete who's just like making all the three-pointers, getting all the most glorious slam dunks. And as he's doing this, he's performing at his prime. He's peeking out, as we would call it, the young people would call it. And as you see this guy, you you look at him and you're like, there's something different about him. And he actually starts sweating Gatorade. (laughs) You can see it, like this lime Gatorade starts coming out of his pores because the Gatorade is in him. And, And I think that kind of applies to our text today, that if you are in the Spirit, the Spirit will be in you, and you will be able to see the fruits of the Spirit in your life. Paul goes on to say, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Two people. Either you have the Spirit, either you belong to Christ, or you don't have the Spirit, and you do not belong to Him. Uh, MacArthur said this, if your life does not show evidence of the presence, the power, and the fruit of God's Spirit, you have no legitimate claim to Christ as your Savior and Lord. 
If you do not desire the things of God and you have no inclination to avoid sin or passion to please God, then you are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit and thus you do not belong to Christ. If you are in the Spirit, the Spirit will be in you and you have a new power, believer, dwelling within you to defeat sin. And we see this power not only over sin, but, but Paul goes on in verses 10 and 11, and he tells you that actually in the Spirit, you have power over death. Look at verse 10. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. That phrase, although your body is dead because of sin, Paul is just making known that even though you are in Christ, your earthly body at this point in time is subject to death. Your earthly body will decay. And if Christ comes back before you go to Him, you will die. Your earthly body will decay. With that being said, your spirit is alive. Your spirit is alive, and that's eternal living. That is, you have been given eternal life. The spirit comes in you, and he gives you the power over sin and death. But he goes further. Look at verse 11. I love it. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. So according to verse 10, is your body subject to death? Yes. But I love this. But because the spirit has made his home in you, his presence in your life cannot but result in life for both your body and your spirit. He is called the spirit of life according to verse 2. The spirit is not circumscribed or restricted by the mortality of your bodies. Instead, he has the power to transform that mortality into immortality, eternal life for your body. You have resurrection power living in you. Stephen Lawson considers this. He says, the Spirit of God indwells us and he will never leave us. Even when we go to heaven at the end of the age, the Spirit of God will resurrect our body and unite it with our soul and spirit, suddenly transforming our body into a resurrected, glorified body. He is the one who will resurrect our body even when our body is laid in the grave. In Christ, you, because of the Spirit, have power over sin, and you have power over death. And here's what's amazing about studying Paul, is that I don't have to come up with an application. He gives us one in verses 12 and 13. Look what he says. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And that phrase, so then, is telling us that Paul, his truth, that statement that he gives in 
12, verse 12, is because of what he's just discussed. It's in light of what he has just discussed, and really he's thrown the gospel out there. He's shown us that we are no longer condemned. We are set free from the law of sin and death. We are no longer under the dominion of sin. We have new minds in the spirit. We have life and peace in the spirit. How should that truth affect how we live here on earth? So then, brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh. And so what does that tell us? When we look at the truth of the gospel, when we see the the glory of Christ, Yes, it should cause us to be grateful, like we talked about last week. Be thankful, be filled with gratitude, be filled with joy, and be filled with praise and worship. And that praise and worship, what Paul is saying is here, that it should lead you to actually pursue obedience. It should lead you to have a new pursuit to be a debtor to the Spirit and no longer a debtor to the flesh. Why are we not a debtor to the flesh? What has the flesh given us? Absolutely nothing. The flesh has done nothing but condemn us. The flesh has done nothing but deceive us into thinking that it can bring joy and satisfaction, and we know it can't. We are not debtors to the flesh. We owe nothing to the flesh. We are no longer to make peace with the flesh. But look at the second half of verse 13. And I skipped over a little part. Why do we not live according to the flesh? And why are we not debtors to the flesh? Because Paul says you will die. Second half of verse 13 though. But if by the Spirit, excuse me, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I love John Owen uh, and I've quoted him like two times last week and I'm quoting him again. If you have a complaint, Curtis at hickorybiblechurch.org. John Owen says this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And as Owen described the life of a Christian, he he gives us an illustration that the human heart in Christ is like this thick woods. It's like this thick brush. Now, we live in Hickory, so the woods, I love the woods at least. I love the brush. So this is not a good brush, what Owen is illustrating, is a bad brush. And you have this thick woods and this thick brush all in your heart, and when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and He dwells within you, He helps you clean out some of this brush. Your brush is not going to be cleaned out right at the moment of salvation, and you're perfect. No, it takes time. That there may be a sin over here that by and through the Spirit you're able to conquer and defeat. Or there may be some, something over here, some woods over here that the Spirit helps you defeat. And really what he's trying to make known is that the life of a Christian is a life of pursuit. We don't live a stagnant life. That's not who we are as Christians. We, we, we fight against sin. We have a pursuit to kill sin in our lives, and it kind of makes sense. Why? Because the Spirit dwells in us, and the Spirit and and God Himself, that doesn't coincide with sin. And so when He is in us, we want to get rid of our sin. So much so, if that's not a desire in your life to kill sin, then you do not have the Spirit present within you. 
If that is not a desire for you to kill sin, then the Spirit does not dwell within you. And Paul says that if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And, and that's kind of confusing in some sense because what he's not saying is that your salvation is earned by your merit. And you receiving the righteousness of Christ is not earned by you defeating a certain amount of sins in your life. Instead, what he's saying is that because of the Spirit, you will, it's inevitable, you will put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. You will live. That's eternal life. But how do we do this? Paul says, by the Spirit. How do we not do it? First of all, you don't do it just on your own. You can't do it. You can't just say, you know what, I'm going to kill the sin in my life, and I'm just going to do this by coming up with this amount of practical ways to help my mind not go and think about that temptation. That's not going to do you well. At the same time, some people take on the philosophy of let go and let God. Like, let go and let God, your sin is just going to dissipate throughout your life and you're going to be made righteous. No, but if you, by the Spirit, so there's, there's a dual effort here that we have to make, but we make through the Spirit to defeat the sin in our lives. And, and we could ask again, how? How are we to put to death sin by the Spirit? Because Galatians 5, 16 says, if I walk by the Spirit, I'm not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. And I think that Paul practically gives us a, a great example of how we are to yield to the Spirit's leading and how we are to walk in the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6, where we see Paul talking about the armor of God. And Paul, as he's displaying the armor of God, gives us one offensive weapon, and what is that? Sword of the Spirit. Yeah, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. One offensive weapon. How are you to battle and fight the good fight and kill the sin in your life? And I, I believe it's right there in that verse. We are to use the word of God. We are to use the sword of the spirit. If you want to attack and defeat the sin in your life, you must wield the word of God. I had a famous quote in student ministry, and I said, you must chop sin's head off. Kill it. For example, how do we do this? Your flesh, your sinful nature, what does it want you to think? Well, it wants you to think that it can give you joy and, and bring you satisfaction. And so how do we attack that temptation? Well, we take the word of God and we tell it that only Christ can satisfy us and bring us joy, right? We remind ourselves of the truth. Psalm 107, 8 through 9 says, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty. He satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. When sin wants you to 
think that it will satisfy you. Remind yourself of the promises of the word. Or if sin, and all sin does this, wants you to think that it can bring you joy, what do we tell it? Christ brings us eternal joy. I don't need to seek anywhere else for joy. Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We put to death sin by the word. We willed the word at it. I heard a guy talk about every little temptation in your life, all the sins that you find yourself prone to dive into, have a word, have a scripture in your mind, memorize it, so that when you're tempted, you tell yourself what's actually true. You, you don't be deceived by sin. We attack sin in our lives by wielding the word at it. And so the, the, the application right out of that is, what's our time in the word like? What's our time in the word like? If we are to pursue, if we are to have this new pursuit of killing sin in our lives, and we do this by and through the word, like, like where, where is that in your life? What does it look like? I, I, Jim Neuheiser, as he was here in the Anchor Conference, just said something that, that really struck me. I was like, man, that, that's so true. And he talked about how every counsel or every counselee that he gives counsel to, as he brings them in the room and as he sees all of these sins in their lives dooming and gleaming over them, the first question that he asked is, what's your time in the word like? What's your time in the word like? So my question to you is, can you expect in your life to defeat whatever sin that you're battling with, if you're not wielding the word of God, and if you're not spending time with God in his word. We could be here till five. In Christ, why is it the most marvelous reality? Because you are controlled. You have a new power within you. That power is a power over sin and death, and you have a new pursuit and that pursuit is toward obedience. Second truth, in Christ, you have a great comforter. You are comforted by the Spirit, and you're comforted in two ways. First, you have been given a new position. Second, you have been given a new prospect, and I'm going to talk about those in a second. Some, as they come to verses 14 through 17, have stated that this truly is the climax of the Bible. This is the pinnacle of the Bible. All redemptive history leads up to this moment, and I agree with them. Look at verse 14. Paul says, For, if, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and are daughters. That phrase, led by the Spirit, what he's doing is really pointing back to what he just discussed in 12 and 13. If you see you being in the Spirit, if you see the Spirit of God dwelling within you and you see the fruits of the Spirit and you're being led by the Spirit, you positionally stand different before God than you did when you were in your flesh. Because in the flesh, what were you? You were an enemy of God, right? 
But in the Spirit, you are a child of the King. You are a child of God. That is your new position. And Paul gives us um, a great, he shows us what this looks like. Look at verse 15. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. And what he's doing there, he's describing the believer's relationship with their father in heaven. That your relationship as a child of God with your father is not an oppressive relationship. Your father is not one who condemns you, one who exacerbates you, one who speaks down upon you and damns you. He's not an oppressive slave master who uh, abuses you and, and reminds you of your sin and deals harshly with you. No, that's not you. You are no longer under the spirit of slavery and the spirit of fear. But you have a new spirit. Your, your relationship with God is described as a spirit of adoption. And, and what Paul, I, I love when he's talking about adoption here because he likely had Roman adoption on his mind. And during this time, adoption was very powerful, very potent. Um, and, and it had a, a pretty deep meaning and Roman custom. Because as a father of a child in Rome, you actually had the privilege, not the privilege, I'm sorry, that's definitely not the the word for that. You have the ability to completely disown your child from birth. You can just boot it, kick it out of the family. And there could be many reasons behind that, but one of the most prominent reasons is that just the father did not desire relationship with the child. And so, Get out of the family. But adoption is completely different. And and in Roman adoption, it actually shows that a parent would go out of their way and choose a child and bring them into their family. Doesn't that show how amazing whoever is adopting is that they would go and they would choose you and bring you into your family and in opposition to not desiring a relationship with you, they desire a relationship with you. That God of the universe desires a relationship with us and he chooses ugly sinners to be his child. Isn't that amazing? But not only that, in Roman adoption, it's very interesting that when adoption took place, that there was a legal bond that was broken. That during this old, so, so when a child was in this other family, they, they had all of the legal debts of the family, and they had all the, the rights of the family. They were kind of under the, the patriarch of the family. But one day have been adopted into a new family. All of the past debts have been wiped away. That, that as you come into this new family, everything about your past life was wiped away in this time. All of your responsibilities, all of your debts, all of that was erased, and you are given new rights. You are given new responsibilities, and that's the same with the gospel. 
That's the same when you are a child of God. God desires to be in a relationship with you. He chooses you, and he erases and completely severs all of your past debt and all of what your past debt had on you, which we know that our past debt was, the wages of sin is death. And our past debt of living according to the flesh was death. But now, all of that has been erased. That when you are a child of God, you stand before Him no longer condemned, redeemed, and chosen. A father has chosen us to be his child. And and the contrast that we see in the gospel, what's incredible, is that the Father in heaven chose to deal with your sin by sending his son, right? By sending his son. He, He dealt with your sin through his son so that you may be a child. We see how sweet this adoption is at the end of verse 15, because as we have received a spirit of adoption, we're able to refer to the most righteous, perfect God of the universe in the Aramaic here as Abba. He is our Abba. He is our Father. And in the modern English, that, that would be like calling, it would be like a young child calling his dad, daddy, or papa, or dad. I love Ronald just making known that we are able to pray to our father. We are able to come before him. Why? Because we are his sons and daughters. That, that word is a deep trust. That, that word, Abba, has a deep tenderness. And so prompted by the Spirit, we are able to refer to Him as our Father. And what's incredible, look at verse 16. This is where the comfort comes in. Because the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I, I picture a, a father who is just oppressive A father who reminds their child of all of their sins and and brings it up all the the time and never affirms that that child is actually their child. This is the opposite. That the father in heaven not only makes us his child, but he affirms that we are his child through the spirit because the spirit attests to our spirit that we are his children. Isn't that amazing? And he does that through, through producing fruit in us and, and walking in us and just making known to us that we are a child of the king. An English um, theologian once said this, is it a small thing that you're in your eyes to be loved by God, to be the son, to be the spouse, the love, the delight of the king of glory? Christian, believe this and think about it. You will be eternally embraced in the arms of the love which was from everlasting and will extend to everlasting. Of the love which brought the Son of God's love from heaven to earth, from the earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to glory, that love which was weary, 
That love which was hungry and tempted and scorned, scourged, buffeted, spat upon, crucified, pierced, which fasted, which prayed, taught, healed, wept, swept, bled, and died, that love will eternally embrace you as a child of God. You have a new position before him. You stand before the holy creator as his child. And not only do you have a new position, but you have a new prospect. You have a new future. And that future is in verse 17. Paul says, and if children, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And really, we could spend till December talking about what does it mean to be heirs of God and heirs with Christ. And in summary, what does the Christian's future behold? What does that mean? Well, being that you are a son of God and you are an heir of God, for eternity waiting for you is eternal life, first and foremost. You have eternal life waiting for you. Waiting for you in in heaven is eternal glory. The scriptures describe God as the one who owns everything. He owns all of the cattle, according to the Psalms. Not only that, but he owns the the silver and owns all of the gold. And so if you think about it, you, you have the richest father, and you are an heir of him. I love uh, the Beatitudes. It says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's everything. You have glory beyond imagine waiting for you in heaven. You have, waiting for you in heaven, you have the presence of God that you are able to be with him for forever. Like Ronald said, we're a brother of Christ. We are a friend of Christ. We are heirs with Christ. So everything that was given to Christ, rightly what Christ received, we will be with him in that. We will be ruling and reigning with Christ. But he says something interesting in 17b. He says, I say 17b, that's what I had in my notes. The second half of 17, he says, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And I I believe that suffering is a few things. Number one, that could be persecution. It could be persecution, that you are suffering for the name of Christ. But I also believe it to be a, a general suffering that comes from believers interacting and being present in a sinful world. The suffering that we face as Christians, people who are in another, like we're, we, we are friends and, and we are of another kingdom. As we live in this world, we will suffer. And provided that we suffer with him, we will be glorified. Piper says this, the only path to glory is suffering because that's what this world gives you. And the question is, will you do it well? Or instead, will you say, quote unquote, you are no longer my Lord, you are no longer my Father, because if that's that's how you treat your kids, I'm out of here. Piper says, if that's your response to suffering, you do not have the Holy Spirit. 
you are not a Christian. And in turn, you will not be glorified. But if you are in Christ, if you have the Spirit, and if you persevere in your sufferings, which is proof of the Spirit dwelling within you, you will live for eternity and you will see a glorious kingdom. Paul describes that in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. And if you think of whatever suffering that you're going through right now, and if you think about it and and you meditate upon it, what Paul would say is that suffering does not at all compare to what's waiting for you in glory. Why is being in Christ the most marvelous reality? And we've seen you're no longer condemned You're released from the penalty of sin. You're no longer controlled. You're released from the power of sin. You have the Spirit dwelling within you who gives you a new power over sin and death. You have a comfort. And as we talked about last week, if if that is the most greatest reality and then truly the, the most disturbing reality is to not be in Christ, to not have Him as your Lord and personal Savior, Because all of that is not true of you. You are condemned. You are under the power of sin. You are an enemy. And what is waiting for you in eternity is eternal separation from God and condemnation. So have faith in Christ. Believe in Him. And He will be in you. Christ will be present in you and you will be given a new life And you will be able to spend eternity with him in his very presence. To be in Christ is the most marvelous reality. Meditate upon that this week. Think about it. And thank you guys for for letting me preach. Uh, Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for, um, for Christ. Thank you for sending your son truly that we may be made your children. Spirit, thank you for giving us a new power over sin. I pray that you would help us in our pursuit to battle sin. That you would help us defeat sin and put to death sin so that we may live. Thank you, God, for your kindness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for adopting us. And Lord, it is in your name that we pray and rejoice. Amen.